Hello everyone and thank you for joining us today on another episode of the Tech Me Out series as part of Let's Lab. Um, my name is Delara Alton, I'm a research assistant at Let's Lab and on top of doing my master's in transnational law at King's College. Today we have a very, very special guest, Christina Blacklaws, um, who is a former president of the Law Society of England and Wales. Um, she's also a business advisor to a range of boards and businesses on transformational change, technology development and diversity and inclusion. She is an award-winning published author, speaker and lecturer and a me frequent media commentator. And on top of that, she's a champion for women in the legal profession. Um, Christina will help us consider whether artificial intelligence will take us into a dystopian society where lawyers will be replaced by robots. In doing so, we will explore issues surrounding AI, bias and discrimination and one, whether transparency is a viable solution. So thank you again for joining us and thank you for accepting to do this podcast. Um, oh, thank you, Delara. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Um, if you like, um, we can dive right in and get into the nitty-gritty. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So in the past few years, London has seen an explosion in legal tech um, startups for developing the latest cutting edge technology. So watch out Silicon Valley. Um, they are founded with the specific purpose of disrupting the operation of the traditionally conservative legal profession. This was exacerbated by the global pandemic as seen in the use of online courts, which has exemplified the possibility of reforming the delivery of court services to wholly in line for low value, high volume cases, as suggested by Richard Susskind. So my first question is, how is AI technology driving innovation in the legal profession? Okay, well, that's a, that's a really broad question. So um, I think I'll, I'll give us a few examples to say so that we can have an idea of what's happening, I guess, in, in private practice, which is where a lot of the um, adoption of innovation is, is, is taking place. And I would say that I think we've already got, even though it's still fairly early days for widespread adoption, we've got a lot of evidence that, that law tech, legal technology, uh, I, I use law tech, uh, is bringing really significant benefits and there's much, much more to come. So things like um, contract management with tools that support the full contract life cycle from, from automated creation using machine learning to assist with drafting and negotiating uh, to, to managing contractual obligations. So the whole contract life cycle is now, um, can be now subject to, to, to law tech. Um, then another area I think is useful to think around is around risk management. So discovery, due diligence, litigation risks, or, or managing IP portfolios, where we utilize algorithms to, to really spot um, outliers um, and identify patterns. And, and that enables us then to start to predict risk and, and hopefully prevent it. Um, and, and then the area of, uh, I guess, legal research and case analysis is another growing area here um, and, and that's really um, increasing I, I think and, and again predictive analytics around that is, is really important. Of course we had particularly over the 
pandemic era, which we're still in, um, huge increase in, in remote hearings. And this has led to a greater digitization of the, of the justice system and, and also tools supporting online resolution. Um, so many more people are, are able to, to manage um, their own legal needs or their own small business needs on, online. Um, and chatbots are now being used pretty regularly as well. Uh, and, and finally, things like um, e-billing, time recording, document management systems being routinely used uh, and allowing lawyers to, to, to connect and to collaborate in a way that hasn't been possible before and to get those big data insights through the analytics. Uh, you know, electronic signatures, for example, uh, now becoming ubiquitous and with greater online verification, um, that's not only reducing the costs, but it's also greatly reducing the um, opportunity for fraud. And ultimately something that quite excites me is that if, if all parties have digital identities, then documents can be signed on, on chain. And that really opens up the possibility of um, having verification through the through the blockchain so so there's lots of exciting things going on at the moment um, in in private legal practice and I think that's only going to grow and um, and become more ubiquitous as the cost of the technology decreases and the comfort and familiarity with the legal profession in utilizing it increases. Um, I think I'd agree with you in the sense that um, legal technology or law tech has been advanced in terms of like from very basic um, from basic um, systems, so such as like um, e-billing or electronic signatures, all the way up to contract automation and predictive um, machine learning. Um, but as with all technology, there are some key challenges. So what are those challenges facing the legal sector for, with the introduction of legal tech? Okay, so, so first of all, I think there's a, there's a big issue around adoption. Uh, and the Law Society, uh, we did some research around this actually towards the tail end of 2019. And although there's this real awareness from lawyers and law firms that this is really important, that the, the market is changing and that there is competitive advantage, which actually in the not too distant future will, will, will be more of a hygiene factor um, in, in relation to adoption of technology. We've still got some significant barriers. So things like uh, structural things like the partnership model, like the billable hour mitigate against investment in, in technology. But I think more pertinently is the, cult, the cultural issues. So, so the, the lack in law firms in particular of any internal change management processes and concerns about risk and compliance um, and a lot of, lot of market confusion. 
So business leaders, decision makers are really unclear about what's useful to their business and what's just noise. Um, and that lack of confidence um, means that they're not really willing to, to invest. Uh, so, so I think there's some real issues around, um, around that in terms of challenges. Uh, and then we have the more policy-driven issues, I think, which uh, we'll, we'll come on to, I suspect, which is about where it is right and ethical and appropriate to use technology uh, um, and how... And, and how we determine that um, and get that balance right. So, so lots to say um, about that. Uh, there are, in terms of unmet legal needs, so access to justice issues, there's uh, an increasing amount of, of of products uh, and and um, services out there for for small and medium enterprises and for consumers. Um, and and there, there's, there's great opportunity and there is also significant risk associated with that. Um, it's definitely fair to say, I think within private practice, um, it's the bigger law firms who were more keen to adopt legal technology as, and I think what we might have is, um, where smaller and medium-sized law firms are staying behind um, and are falling behind and there's going to be a huge gap in the kind of legal services that provided or the efficiency um, and I think efficiency is a key um, issue or task for most lawyers and for their customers when they're looking for it. Um, yeah I, th I think you're right with that Delora. I think um, you know, there is certainly our research at the Law Society showed that there was a, a, a big difference between the B2B market, business to business and business to consumer market lagging significantly behind. Um, and, and I would say that I see great opportunity for small law firms. Uh, the, the market is developed such now, the law tech market, that there are some products out there that are either try before you buy plug and play and you know and just pay for what you use in terms of data um, and I have seen some great examples of small boutique law firms who have really gone in hard in terms of technological adoption and have transformed their ability to compete against much larger legal practices uh, because they no longer need an army of paralegals they, they can utilize technology to be able to get to the same results. So I would always say to small law firms, you know, that there are products and services out there that are absolutely for you. It's just a matter of identifying your need, your client's need and finding the solutions for that. Um, but as we know, the law, law legal industry we tend to be very traditional conservative. We like things as they are, leave them as yeah. they are, just continue. Yeah. But obviously, um, as the pandemic has proven, even if we're not accepting change, change will come in whether we like it or not. Um, and I think that leads on to my third question in terms of how do we balance artificial intelligence and adoption of such technology with whilst upholding the rule of law? 
So the rule of law inherently accepts that we will disagree about things, but it's about how we balance these powers in an institutionalized way. So do you think that legal tech has a potential to challenge the rule of law or whether it, or what can be done to uphold the rule of law? It's a really challenging philosophical question almost in, in a way. Um, and, and I'll give a bit of a philosophical answer if I might, and then we'll dig into to, to more of the detail of it. So um, for, for me, the, the law, legal court services actually serve an essential purpose in the society. So they, they ensure our collective rights, responsibilities, they, they enable economic activity. And my view is that the legal sector needs to keep pace um, to deliver what society and the economy need. And I see therefore law tech as a, an investment in the, in the infrastructure of society and the rule of law. So if we get it right, uh, law tech can help us to move to a place where both society and, and business needs us to go. And, and I think we can, if we get it right, and we'll talk about um, all of the challenges around that, I'm sure, but we, we can improve access to justice, better legal information and services, um, you know, accessible services that uh, are available to everybody through technology. Uh, and we can more effectively manage risk and mitigate harm in, in our ever-changing and <laughs> frankly volatile work and we can support businesses to um, dissolve uh, and, and individuals to, to dissolve as well as solve their disputes uh, and maximizing people's rights uh, and we can provide those digital contracts that can empower efficient um, transparent interaction and trade and and we can also if we get it right, open up that black box of data so that we can provide access to, to structured legal data, share knowledge and train in a really fair and unbiased way, the algorithms that we need. So that's, that's the positive picture. Um, so I think that uh, there's an awful lot that we might that we could achieve in continuing down this journey of adoption of law tech, both in the private sector and also in the in the public sector, so in the court sector. Um, and there are a lot of challenges um, along the way with that. So there is, you're right to use that word balance. It's really important that we have checks and balances uh, that support that appropriate and ethical use of technology in our, in our judicial and legal systems. Um, you mentioned transparency and having um clear data sets and accessible data sets. Um, I think transparency and opaqueness of data, machine learning especially, has been a topic for academics and people within this field for a while. Um, but even if we do achieve transparency, and some people have suggested open source data, um, how will transparency be effective if 
the processing of data is interpret like uninterpretable or inaccessible, inaccessible to the lay person, or even as lawyers, um, even like inaccessible to us. Like we don't yeah. know the data, what data has been retrieved, um, how that data has been processed, um, which we'll get onto later with regards to proxy variables, um, how that data has been processed, and how that what how the outcome has been achieved. So even if we do get that process and we can look into it, um, we don't we don't get the full picture. Yeah, uh, and and I, you've you've highlighted a, a really really challenging area, which is about both about transparency, but also about understandability. And you know, if if we don't improve transparency. Um, and if people aren't able to understand why a computer, an algorithm has made a decision about them, then it means that they are in effect unable to assess whether to appeal that decision. So, so it actually removes rights potentially, human rights from, um, from individuals. So it is a really, really important issue. And, it's a, and it is a big challenge because there are, um, there are a few people who can understand the code. <laughs> Um, those people probably aren't the people to translate that to individuals. So I think it is really important that in any systems that we set up now, that we do have effective human engagement. In, you know, we've got to have a human in the loop, even if that is um, an interpreting role and then an advising role. Uh, it, it's, it's fundamental to ensure the rule of law and, and the human rights are, are maintained and, and protected. So, so yeah, really, really important. Um, and when we look at this from a what we can do perspective, uh, actually we probably need to strengthen and clarify the rights that we have at the moment, um, as well as perhaps looking to some new rights and new obligations, particularly when we are looking at it from um, the public sphere. So let's say criminal law, for example. When I was president, um, I chaired a commission which looked into the use of algorithms in the criminal justice system. Um, and in that, we found some, some really concerning um, issues about actually about the legality of the use of, of some of these systems. Um, and, um, and we made a number of recommendations about how, how the state could ensure that, um, that people's rights are protected. And, and, and that's, really, that's really the area that we need to be focused on. I don't think we can just leave it up to the, the, te the tech startups and scale-ups who are developing. You know, they, they will be developing with a particular purpose in mind. We can't um, leave it to the users of the technology to, to hold the line. Really, we need a legislative and regulatory framework um, around this that, that 
gets that balance right, that supports the, um, the increased appropriate use of technology, but ensures that we do that in, in, in a way that, um, you know, really reflects our, our rights and, uh, you know, society's view of, of how technology should be utilised. Um, you're very right to say it's, it basically boils down to the state in regulating it. Um, it's experts like yourself can make recommendations and there is there's plenty of research and recommendations that highlight the challenges and the threat to human rights and the rule of law with the use of um, artificial intelligence technology um but it does boil down to the state and some states or region regional bodies um have opted for guidelines or recommendations how far away do you think we are from um, having hard law on, in this area? Well, I think there's, you know, there is a spectrum, isn't there? So we have guidance, we have standards. Um, I don't think that that in particularly, you know, I do differentiate between what is private individuals or business to business and when the individual comes into contact with the state so when it is a, um, a, a public um, law matter uh, and I think that's where for example with criminal law where it's the theatre where there is most risk to individuals if, if, if we get it wrong so that's why in our research we, we, we focused on that um, and what we what we recommended was that there should be um, things like mandatory publication of data protection impact assessments so that the producer can evidence, so the, the developers can evidence that they have in, in the design and development of their, um, of their technology uh, undertaken a proper impact assessment um, and and also that um, you know we need to, to beef up our current uh, regulations concerning fairness and transparency in the in the justice system so you, you know, to, to take account of the use of uh, algorithm in, in decision making and um, to, to counter bias and uh, discrimination. Uh, and that could take the form, for example, of an equality impact assessment being introduced into the, into the public sector. Uh, and we also felt that um, explanation uh, facilities for, for algorithms in the public sector were really important. So they need to be designed, as, as we were talking before, to allow individuals to understand how the decisions are made and then to be able to assess what they need to do about it. So, so I think there are lots of ways that we could introduce um, a regulatory framework which is really supportive but not overbearing. So it, it ensures human rights but it doesn't stop uh, the development and the use of technology in their tracks. Uh, having said that, there are probably some that should be stopped in their tracks. <laughs> we'll come on to that, maybe. <laughs> Definitely. 
say, um, and I do agree in terms of um, harmonizing the two um, sides. So the, um, the lawyers and the academics and the practitioners and, the, um, and on the other side, the businesses, the coders, the tech uh, gurus, because um, I've spoken to some and they're just not interested. That's not their priority. That's not something they have to consider. But if we do have impact assessments that require them to consider the like fairness and transparency and um, embed human rights into their policies and the way they behave when operating these technologies, that would be something that could automatically harmonize the two um, and create a harm, yeah. harm, harmonizing relationship. Um, yeah, I um, I chair two government bodies in, in the law tech space. One of them is called um, Law Tech UK. And we have a sandbox, which uh, we, we set up. It's, uh, we're overwhelmed with applicants from the, um, from the law tech community to, to join the sandbox. And one of the things that... Um, they were really clear about and how we designed our, our sandbox. So a sandbox is an opportunity to, to, to test out ideas and, um, and um, incubate those and to have external help to be able to do that uh, in a way that will be successful. So yes, we had lawyers um, involved in that, but also importantly, we had the regulator community. Um, from the ICO uh, down into the legal regulator community. Um, and we, we also had um, ethical input, so from, from our ethics task force. Uh, and the, the businesses, the startups that went through the sandbox said that um, that plus the advice from the uh, investment team that we had were, were the things that were of most value because that they don't have that, as you say, they don't have that understanding of the regulatory structure and they were a little uncertain about the ethical structuring, um, and 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 then of course the investment piece actually tells them how to to, to monetize and and grow to scale their, their business ideas. So, um, so so there are it is a real issue, and there there are organisations like like um, Law Tech UK trying really hard to to help to bring all of that together and to to solve those problems in a, in a positive way, both for the law tech industry um, and the um, intermediaries, the lawyers, and the end users, the clients. Moving on to the next question. So there have been some discussions um, that the advancement in technology have increased the purpose and use of AI in the legal fields, so much so that it could be argued that we are reaching a point of legal singularity at which the functional capabilities of AI um, surpasses those of human lawyers and judges. Such predictions were made by academics including Richard Susskind in his book from The Future of Law from 1996 where he predicted basic technologies such as emails, which at the time was revolutionary and sparked a lot of controversy and um, highlighted um, at um, online courts. So do you think we will ever reach a point where AI um, will replace human beings and human expertise or legal thinking? 
Yeah, uh, I think the question is probably not if but when, in some senses, um, be, because of the, the the rapid rapid development of of AI. You know, AI. Well, AI has been around um, since since the sixties, actually, but we haven't had the the right set of circumstances for it to be able to really take hold and develop, which we, we do now in terms of you know, brute force processing, um, in terms of the data that is available, uh, and, and also the, the, you know, just the, the capacity um, or, uh, of the of the AI, so the algorithms. So, um, so I think uh, we are living through a time of very significant change. Um, and the first question is: Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, and from my diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective, uh, it, it, again, it could go either way because what we know is that our current human decision makers are, as we all are, very biased um, and by no means perfect in terms of their decision making. There's a lot of research about, you know, decision making in criminal courts pre and post lunch and the difference that the, the difference in decision making and sentencing. Uh, so, so, you know, we've got a lot of fallibility in, in our current system. And of course, um, as, as Richard Susskind says, he makes the point that you know, maybe about 60% or less of human beings live under the protection of the rule of law, have access to, to law. And, and so it is by no means perfect. Um, however, uh, if we fully replace um, human decision-making with automated decision-making, um, then that also has significant problems. One is uh, uh, just around the, the chill factor of it. We're not, I think, at a stage of society's evolution where that would be acceptable. It might be acceptable um, in relation to parking fees or you know, um, not having a fishing license. It is not, I would say, acceptable in relation to whether somebody goes to prison or not. Um, so, so I think there's a, there's, a, there's a wide spectrum. And although society is moving along that spectrum, so things that would not have been acceptable a decade ago um, and are, are now not only just accepted, but, you know, we wouldn't want it otherwise. So, so you know, how many of us go into a bank? A physical bank now, for example, you know that that has moved on and changed. Um, but I think I think that there there will be for the foreseeable future that working together of human being and machine, and that will I hope provide the best balance for. Um, for our justice system and also for uh, our private legal systems uh, as, as well. Um, and, and I see that will, that the use of um, algorithms will increase, will become very much a part of how we 
deliver legal services and how we deliver justice. And if we get it right, um, then it will be better. It will be quicker, it will be cheaper, it will be fairer. If we get it wrong, we could actually be hardwiring all, all the biases uh, that we have in society at the moment into um, all future decision-making. So the stakes are high um, and we really do need to get it right. Um, and moving on, I think we've kind of covered this in terms of the sandbox, um, but how successful or how well are current startups in embracing the principles of fairness, transparency and accountability, which is pushed by legislation um, such as the GDPR or um, the ethics guideline for trustworthy artificial intelligence. Yes, and I, and I think we need we need more um, opportunities such as the, the the Law Tech UK sandbox to enable startups to do that because, as you said, uh, you know most of them it's just not on their horizon. They they have. Um, a wonderful idea that they want to bring to life and they want it adopted. Um, and, you know, and that's their sort of linear focus. Uh, however, uh, a lot of uh, development has taken place in the dark and, um, and a lot of startups have learned to their cost that actually they do need to slow down. They do need to engage the right people uh, and that includes the subject matter experts, the lawyers, uh, who, who will be using their um, technology or the consumers, if, it, if it's a direct to, to consumer um, kit, then um, you, you, they, they, they also need to write from the outset in terms of idea creation to ensure that what they do will fit into the um, the regulatory and legislative landscape, but also will be um, acceptably moral. I think I would say to to the to the legal community. A lot a lot of law tech has been sold directly to the to the legal community. So so that that lawyers can feel assured that there are no data protection issues, there are no risk and compliance issues, there are no, you know, they are not um, offending any of the legislation that they are, are subject to either globally or within their professional re um, regulation. Um, and that assurance piece is really important um, in getting adoption by, by firms and legal departments of businesses. So, so it's, it's, it's becoming uh, a commercial imperative, I would say, for, um, for law tech startups. Uh, wasn't like that a few years ago, is, is a development now, and, um, and I think is a very positive one. <laughs> Finally, some positive developments in, in terms of um, humans being in the loop, where machine learning might often yield unsupervised results that lack human involvement. This, however, does not necessarily mean that bias is eliminated. How can we? How can the law actually offer some much-needed reassurances regarding accountability mechanisms 
So some people suggest um, post-auditing, um, or which might in increase the accessibility to and interpretability of um, data. What do you yeah, say? and, and I, I think that 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 is really important. Um, for, for me, there is a role here for for regulation. So we've got to we absolutely have to improve transparency and, and um, accessibility and understandability. So it's no, no point um, you know, having a thousand pages of code saying that's transparent. It, it isn't, it means nothing. So, um, so it has to be understandable to the end user and to the people who are impacted by, um, by an algorithmic decision. And um, as I say, I think there are mechanisms that we can use uh, already in, in, in our legal system to, to be able to support that, but we just focus it in on algorithmic decision making. So that uh, mandating the publication of, of data protection, impact assessments, um, meaningful human interaction, as, as, as you said, um, and going beyond data protection, um, using the, our, our existing regulations for uh, transparency and fairness in, in the justice system. Uh, so, um, uh, as I say, I think, I think we have a number of um, regulatory requirements that we can point to specifically algorithmic decision making, particularly in the public sector. So particularly when it um, impacts those who are on the, the receiving end of the justice system uh, to, to make sure to shine a light and to, to make sure that there is a regulatory requirement that um, that people can um, understand and see that the decision is fair and appropriate and and of course you know, for many decisions that also might require a lawyer to to help them to as a trusted advisor to help them to understand um, that this is is a, a fair and appropriate decision just as a lawyer would do if the decision was being made by um, a human judge so um, so I, I think there are you know there are things that we can do um, I also think that in there are other things that the law tech community can do and that's in terms of the development and auditing is is one but that's a bit sort of you know after the event um, there's some really nice work that's been done in relation to um data switching. So uh, to, just to check that training data isn't biased. So, you know, al algorithms are trained on, on, on large sets of data. Those that data is inevitably um, biased because society is biased. Um, and, and to ensure that the outcomes of the algorithmic decision making are not biased, um, they do things like they switch around genders, for example, from the data. See, if there is a, a different result, if it's, uh, you know, you put in female gender or male gender or other gender, um, and the same with other protected 
characteristics. So, um, so, so there is uh, some nice work that, that's being done at the development end to ensure that training um, training data sets are are as free as possible and freer than society actually um, of bias. I think it might be better, like you said, to um, improve and do the checks and balances at the design stage rather than waiting for the outcome and then acting on that, which is what the law tends to do. Um, but that's just the way of life and that's how it works. It's better for the law to step in once it goes wrong. Otherwise, um, innovation will be um, stopped um, and commerce, uh, the economy might slow down. So which kind of relates to um, my next question in terms of, would it, is it fair or do you see room for ethical responsibility regarding legal service providers? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think I think the ethical responsibility goes all the way through here. So um, from those who are designing and developing and selling the, the products to those who are utilizing them um, and to to government and regulators as well. We we all should be accountable for ethical use. I think I think I, I, I sort of miss consumers out of that because I think that's really challenging to um, for consumers to, to hold accountability. You, we know that there is so much um, uninformed consent that goes on um, from, from consumers as just by way of you know, one example. Uh, so, so, but I do think that there are institutions um, and the organizations that have been involved in um, utilizing the, the, the products and services need to be accountable. And, uh, and at, at the moment, we have some ethical frameworks which are not particularly designed for, for the legal profession. And that's why the Law Society is, is, is coming in to um, to, to translate that into something that is is really appropriate uh, and valuable, because we do need to have that common understanding and common acceptance of um, the the ethical issues that arise with the use of technology. Uh, then, then we will be able to get to a place where it's just software and we don't worry about it. We don't even talk about it because it's just part of what we, we do and we use because it is safe and appropriate and is, you know, supportive of human uh, society uh, uh, and as opposed to um, damaging of it. And, and so that's that's where I hope we will get, but we all have to take responsibility to make sure that uh, we are aware and engaged and um, that we provide individual checks and balances along the way. This is all very well having legislation regulation, but if it is not enforced, um, then uh, then we're we're in with a problem. So um, so yeah, it's down to all of us. Yeah, enforcement is actually really it's something that's time and time again that comes up. Um, it came. It's. I, was gonna, I don't know if I should say this. Well, in my coursework, I'm looking at um, 
gender diversity quotas on boards. And then France, they found that, um, France and Norway, they found that people weren't implementing companies and boards were not implementing it until they started issuing fines and enforcing the legislation. And that's probably yeah. something that we're going to have to do here. And we saw that especially, so the GDPR hasn't, it's not something that's come out only in 2015. It was, how would I say, it was set in stone in 2015. And then thanks to the ICO, it was enforced by issuing fines. And I think we definitely, we don't need to create new systems. We just need to, like we said, adopt the ones we have and implement it whilst the law catches up in a sense. Yeah. And, you know, like, like any industry, um, if you have a few heads on poles, <laughs> if you like, you know, where, where actually there have been um, decisions against law firms that uh, have led to, let's say, significant fines because of data breaches or, or whatever, then, then actually the rest of the industry is going to, going to follow suit. And I, I think you probably, uh, if I look at private practice, most, you know, the biggest concern is about cybersecurity uh, as opposed to, um, you know, we, we're not utilizing um, technology in the way that we should. So, so there is a, there's a natural caution in, in the legal profession to, to make sure that we don't break the rules, that we do, um, that we do comply. Uh, and, um, and then we just say before, we need to get that balance right between not, uh, not therefore impeding any experimentation and any engagement with, with law tech, because ultimately that could end up being to the good um, as, as opposed to um, being something that will not be in, in firms, in clients and society's best interests. And um, moving on to the last question, I think this, as a student, I think this is something that I really want to ask. How do you think the modern the curriculum, especially for law students, to help um, shape the legal thinkers of tomorrow? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm equally passionate about this question, Delara, because I worry that in large measure the way that law is taught in this country today is the same as I was taught it you know, back in the Victorian era so I think it's, it's something that really worries me because the profession and it is a vocational course this the profession has already moved on so significantly in terms of the way that um, law is practiced the courts are in a process of seismic change at, at the moment um, and um, and we're still training people to be rumpel of the bailey or <laughs> silks or whatever you know it's just it's very very different um, so I, there are a, there are a handful of institutions um, education institutions who are are really doing very, very well. So, you know, that's, I don't want to um, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that it will become an imperative for all um, law faculties to really look long and hard at their curriculum and 
stress test that against what the skill set that is required for modern lawyering. And that skill set is as much about emotional intelligence and communication and engagement um, as it is about, uh, you know, a, a, a comfort and a familiarity with technology um, as it is about, um, you know, learning um, the ins and outs of tort law. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I, yeah, I do, I do think there needs to be a change. Uh, structurally, it's very challenging because uh, it's a bit like legal institutions where the structure of the partnership model really mitigates against um, sizable investment and significant change. And that is also uh, thematically true of uh, academia. So it's, it's, it's a big ask, uh, but it's, it's necessary. And I think students will vote with their feet as well, that they will choose universities um, and academic institutions that can give them that uh, relevancy of experience in, in, in their courses. So soon, it'll, hopefully, it'll become a hygiene fact, something that just has to happen um, to be able to deliver uh, uh, appropriate courses for, for students. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you. Um, and is there any, any last words that you'd like to say? No, just a big thank you to you, Delara. Very interesting, very challenging questions, but um, the sorts of things that we need to be thinking about and um, great pleasure. So thank you very much. Thank you.